Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breadcrumbs. Today, I am joined by Joe Gray. Joe is a CTF Black Badge winner, author, speaker, trainer, but most importantly, he was one of the first people I ever met in person in the InfoSec community. Joe, how's it going? It's going pretty good. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Like, ha have I ever told you that story in person that you were like the first person that was nice to me at a conference? No, you haven't actually. <laughs> yeah, this was, uh, I mean, I'm fairly sure it was you. Um, Circle City Con 5 in 2018. Um, I'm pretty sure that we were both standing outside the hotel like in the afternoon and you just started talking to me and we talked about password cracking um, you yelled at April Wright as she was walking by on the street, you know, asking her what her mom's name was before she got married. Yep, um, that's definitely me. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, man, this guy's awesome. Like, you know, just talking to me, that's cool. Um, and then, you know, spoiler alert, everybody at Circle City Con was awesome. Um, but that was just a really, really good positive experience. And then for uh, for our paths to cross again years later with Trace Labs and other endeavors, I've always thought that was really cool. Absolutely. And I mean, it's been very interesting and exciting to see how people I've met across a variety of experiences, whether it be speaking, training, online talking, you know, whatever, uh, how they have been able to grow and mature and attain success in a variety of different ways. It's just really exciting to see everyone experiencing success together since, you know, you success is not finite. I can be successful while you're successful. My success does not hinge upon your lack of being successful. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that I think really makes our community special um, is that there really is room for everybody and other people succeeding, you know, will, will either directly benefit you or indirectly benefit you. So it's one of the things I've always enjoyed, both being on the outside, trying to get in, and then now that I'm on the inside. So. Yeah. And it also, it's been really exciting to see the growth of Trace Labs from whenever I was sitting and I just threw together two hours of training like four years ago because Trace Labs was running an event during DEF CON and they're like, hey, we need some training on this. I was like, oh, I got you. And I put a two hour thing together and we just looked for a person that was actually in the class. We were looking at stuff on them for two hours. And then I was like, two hours is not enough, four hours. And then, oh, no, we need to go more. Uh, I'll make it six. And then I taught the six hour class and it ended up being seven and a half hours. I was like, nope, this is an eight hour class seeing the growth of that and then just how trace labs has been able to grow and mature over the years and remain true to who as an organization trace labs is but at the same time have so much reach and positive impact as well yeah and i was really hoping that we could dive into your experiences as a trainer as a teacher you know maybe specifically focusing on, on, on OSINT, but maybe just teaching in general, because I think there's a lot of good lessons there. But the thing that, you know, has always struck me about OSINT in particular is that there's not a lot of 
like there is training out there. So I'm not going to say there's not formal training, but because it's not like a direct career track, there's not as much like in place guidance. There aren't as many guardrails in place. Um, you know, if you want to get into DFIR or you want to get into incident response or you want to just, or you, or you want to go be a sysadmin or you want to do red teaming, like there, there's a lot of like formal stuff in place to kind of get you there. But I feel like because OSINT is kind of a component to a lot of other jobs, um, it could be difficult to like find really good resources to get started in the field. Um, so I'm really excited to hear just you talk about like, how do you even teach OSINT? Um, you know, how did, how did you settle on your, you know, methodology for, for a course? Like, you know, where do you see OSINT training going in the, in the future? Really whatever's on your mind there. Sure. So with OSINT, you hit the nail on the head. OSINT is omnipresent, right? We exist in AppSec. We exist in pen test. We exist in threat intel, reverse engineering, uh, forensics in general. We exist everywhere, but at the same time, we exist nowhere. We're kind of like Schrodinger's intelligence, if you will. Uh, but to that end, you know, if we wanted to use a warfare term with this, when we're talking about like firewalls or being a sysadmin or forensics, that's very symmetric in that there's a defined way to do it uh, with a firewall. And this is something that I talk about quite frankly and frequently. I don't subscribe to the idea of an OSINT guru or expert per se. There's only one. And I don't think I'm going to get any arguments in who, but it's Michael Basil. We're all where we are doing what we're doing because he wrote open source intelligence techniques the first time. And then he created a course and then it grew and it grew and it grew and the books have continued to come out. I will acknowledge he is the OG of OSINT and he is the only person that I will acknowledge as a guru or as an expert. Everybody else, whether it be myself, uh, listing other trainers here, OSINT Combine, Kirby, Micah, even Ginsburg, uh, Levy, Salah Heldenaz, you know, I that's not an exhaustive list. That's just the top of my head. We're all just students of the game. And, you know, we do the same thing that the practitioners do uh, because at the end of the day, we are all practitioners as well, but we are just a little bit further in the game than some other people. And I use a chili cook-off theory. You've been in a class, you've heard this before to explain how it works. We all have our own recipes. You know, when we talk about chili, and I feel like Bubba from Forrest Gump when I say this, but when you talk about chili, you could have white chili, green chili, red chili. You could have vegetarian or vegan chili. You could have chili with or without beans. It could be with or without peppers. It could be mild, medium, hot, or with served with a side of a glass of water and a waiver, or a glass of milk and a waiver, rather. So you can have chicken, beef, turkey, maybe even tofu, maybe impossible meat, uh, all of the above, all the game. You know, you could have elk, deer, bison, any of that. But, you know, if you sat several practitioners down and said, hey, investigate this thing, the way it works is we're all going to arrive at similar conclusions. We're all going to make our pot of chili per se. But the recipe that we follow, even though it may have the exact same ingredients, we may use the exact same data sources, we may follow it in a different order. Like, for example, with peppers, we might one person might just cut their peppers up and throw it in their pot of chili. The other person might smoke them overnight 
uh, at like 180 degrees with uh, cherry wood the night before, which is going to affect the flavor. So ultimately, we're going to arrive at similar yet different outcomes. And when I teach, I try to explain to people that my way is not the way, it's a way. And unlike some of the other trainings that are out there, um, I try not to focus on tools. I want to focus on the process, the methodology, the data source itself. You have this username. What can you do with this username? Where can you pivot? You have this phone number. You have this email address. So that way, if tools like Recon NG or What's My Name or Sherlock or Migrate or any of that go away, if any of that goes away, you are not left in the dust because you rely solely on a tool. You understand what you need to do with it and you understand where you can go with it. For example, anecdotally, I was teaching Monday night and I was talking about what's my name. And I was like, you know what? If this goes down or if you want to do this another way, try this. And I pulled out Google dorks. I had never done that in a class before. It had never even clicked with me besides doing the in URL Google dork for a username, but also in title, uh, in text, my absolute favorite dork on the planet creates a lot of noise with that one. I wouldn't mess with that one, but in title and in URL, absolutely. But it's more of with OSINT, there's a lot of things that you can do. Oh, the OSINT you can do. If you want to hear this, come to the recon village, uh, at 10.50 a.m. on Friday, August 11th. Uh, spoiler alert, shameless promotion there. But with that, there's so many things you can do because we intersect with thing, with other disciplines. And to your point with training, there are no guard guardrails. I've seen OSINT training that's been geared exclusively to pen testers. I had a team of people come in and evaluate some of my on-demand material for inclusion on another on-demand platform and it was rejected because the the people that came in did not understand that I wasn't framing this as a pen tester. I was framing this as an investigator that may be looking at some things that could be useful in a pen test. But I was looking at this more from an intelligence perspective as a whole, not just pen test, not just threat intel, not just reverse engineering. And understanding that is very important because going back to the sysadmin and firewall thing, it's possible to possible to become an expert in networking. I mean, Cisco has an entire certification for that. I mean, I've seen people wearing jackets that say CCIE on them that was awarded to them by Cisco. And sure, some things are going to change with the syntax when you go from one version to another. But at the end of the day, it's still the same. A firewall has either allowed or rejected traffic since the beginning of time, and they're going to continue with OSINT because you have data sources, terms of service, regulations and laws and people and businesses changing the way they interact on the internet. It's a constant moving target. You've got to stay on top of it to really be relevant. Yeah. Um, the one thing that that like has stood out to me, you know, as having, you know, paid for your classes, um, taken other classes, read books, um, you know, you give OSINT training, but I, I guess the question I'll phrase is like, how much OSINT are you teaching and how much like investigative fundamentals are you teaching? And the reason I ask is because when I first got exposed to OSINT was through social engineering 
So I picked up a Michael Basil book. Back then it might've been like seventh or eighth edition. And I, I just jumped straight into the tools. Like, okay, here's all, here's all the tools I need. Okay, I'm gonna do some OSINT and I'm gonna be an amazing social engineer. Spoiler alert, it didn't go great <laughs> because I, did, I, I, I had no foundation of how to investigate a thing, how to even like clearly articulate what I was investigating. I was just like throwing usernames into tools and trying to pivot, but I didn't have any structure because um, I didn't have an investigative background. So like, what's your take on that? You know, since you've put it that way, that actually makes a lot of sense, uh, especially in some of the more foundational courses, like Introduction to Intelligence, uh, the AITI course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's There's some investigative theory there, especially in the people course. I spend a lot of time talking about, okay, here are the Trace Labs categories. Here are uh, things that you are looking for. And I explain why they are important. And that's something that understanding the why is oftentimes more important than understanding the how. Within some courses, I jump right in and it's immediate, you know, here's, we're investigating this. We're looking into a business. Oh, well, here's how you run dig. Here's DNS. Here's security trails. Here's all this stuff. For the classes, I don't have a golden ratio with it. Some classes you see it more than others. Uh, but, you know, like, for example, I would say there's next to no investigative theory that is put in the OSINT using Recon NG course, but in the invest intelligence investigations people or AITI, yeah, it's pretty heavy. Uh, and then it's probably somewhere in between for some of the other courses. And then, of course, with OBSEC, not so much because it's more of helping you with OBSEC. That course is a little bit different because I don't. Unlike extreme privacy, extreme privacy basically is this is how you disappear because the book that came before that, I don't know if you were aware, but Michael Basil had a book before extreme privacy that was the precursor of that. And it was called hiding from the internet. I actually no, have a copy. Yep. I had a copy. He had a, another book too. It was the uh, complete um, privacy and security guide volume one and two as well. Um, uh, I also have copies of those. Um, but uh, with that, you know, extreme privacy is, as the name implies, it's extreme. And the way I teach is these are things like I'm not going to go full Michael Basil with you. I'm going to give you tidbits for thought. I'm going to point out some things you may or may not be aware of. I'm going to talk to you about how you might want to maintain a false persona or here's some things that you may want to know in terms of how to how to kind of structure your disinformation like when to remove data or when to leave it when you work with data broker type stuff but i try to be more descriptive than prescri prescriptive in that regard i leave people to their own decision it's i i say hey i'm giving you the facts up front it's up to you to determine your threat model and what you are comfortable with i cannot make that decision for you so a lot of times in any course, I'll say, here's the technique, here's what you need to know, integrate it into your own workflow, integrate it into what you need to do with it and make it your own so that that way I'm not telling you precisely, this is exactly how you always have to do this. You could do this. And then I'm always open to questions in class as well. Like I never wait for prompts. I tell students up front, if you have a question, ask it right now. And sometimes a student question will be like, hey, you know, 
that's a very interesting question. And let's test this out. And I'll just test it live right there. Let's see if this workflow actually jives. And, you know, it's it's enriching in that perspective. Definitely. Um, how has your, like, take on training changed, if at all, you know, from the time you started several years ago to today? I've kind of polished it a little bit. Uh, I've got a little bit more formalized, uh, but, you know, there are some classes that, you know, I, I say this in jest, but honestly, I could start the Zoom and after I make my statement of I've got a face made for video or a face made for audio and I turn my video off, that I could literally sit and have my eyes closed, teach the entire course because it's just something I'm so intimately familiar with and then just open my eyes only to flip the slide. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I always try to adapt the courses when things change, like I've had to adapt some of the lines of conversation associated with Twitter since Elon took over and some of the changes there. Uh, I've adapted some of the conversation around some of the new platforms as well. I've not really got into talking Blue Sky, Mastodon, uh, Parlay Me, We Gab a whole lot yet, but it's still stuff that gets mentioned. Uh, with the search engines course, I've had to adapt that because search engines have changed. Like, for example, Gigablast is gone now. Although it's not permanently gone, I don't know what I'm implying. Yes, I do. No, I'm not saying. But anyway, uh, you have things like that. But, you know, honestly, if anything, I'm just more comfortable teaching and I just try to maintain a very conversational tone. Like I try to present myself in class, not as, as someone who knows what I'm doing, but at the same time, I try to present myself more as a peer to my students than not. So, I and like for example, there are some classes instructors out there that have their pre-built labs. They have their pre-rehearsed demos. They've got their own fake accounts that they're using for demos and what have you. And yet for demos, I log into some of my false accounts. Yes, but I'm not investigating false accounts when I do my demos, and I purposely don't rehearse my demos in advance because I want people to see me work through it. If something goes wrong, I want them to see me struggle so they feel more comfortable struggling whenever they go through their investigation. If this guy that's got 10 plus years experience doing this is having trouble with it, I feel a lot better having trouble with it too. Yeah, and that's one of the things that that struck me, you know, when I took maybe my first class with you is that it's very non-theoretical. It isn't just you talking through like, hey, if this happens, here's how you would respond. Or here's an example I set up. It's very much like, no, this is kind of what it looks like in the real world. You know, then I was taking that course as someone, you know, on the, on the outside. But now that I, I do this professionally, like, yeah, that's exactly how it is. That's exactly what a real investigation looks like. Um, so yeah. that's one of the things I've always really appreciated about your trainings. Yeah. And that's the thing. I I don't ask people what they do before they come in. I know some people, like especially with the people course, they take it solely because they're going to compete in a Trace Labs event. That's why if you see me randomly scheduling people courses, it's probably because I might have some TLP red intel of something coming up. Um, and it's not even TLP red. It's probably like TLP pink um, at best. But with that, 
I never try to understand, are you an investigator? Like, are you a PI? Are you law enforcement? Are you uh, doing forensics? Are you blue team? Are you compliance? Are you just into true crime? Are you nosy? Any of the above? I, I don't ask those questions. So whenever I establish the rhetoric for a course, I try to encompass the line of conversation that would be applicable for anyone in any of those potential roles. And in some courses, it's more prevalent than others. Like I tend to see a lot more pen testers in the business course, which makes sense. I tend to see a lot more private investigators and true crime enthusiasts in image intelligence. And then I tend to see a lot of forensics people, law enforcement and PIs in the cryptocurrency investigations course, because that's applicable to what they're doing. So um, I, I try to keep it as real as possible. And the thing is, I don't create a class unless I've had to do whatever it is that I'm teaching. So like, that's why you're not going to see me go off and create uh, some random course about tracing IBAN numbers, right? Like I know what an IBAN number is. I know it deals with financial intelligence, but I've never had to do that. I've never, like I've came close, but I've never been in a position where I had to do it. So whenever I'm teaching, I'm teaching primarily from experience, not the theory. Have you found like <clears throat> certain courses people like get more out of? And that's, that's, that's not necessarily a reflection on the course itself, but it like intuitively, it feels like a brand new person coming into a people OSINT would just get more out of a pen tester taking your business OSINT course that was maybe just, just looking to just test their own knowledge or fill in some gaps. The two most valuable courses I offer. Um, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot saying this, but the two most valuable courses I offer universally, alternative and advanced search engine intelligence, because anybody and everybody can use a search engine. Um, I'll tell you that course is about to grow, uh, where at the end, I cover a lot of Google dorking. I'm about to grow into non-Google dorking to include possibly Bing, possibly Yandex, possibly Shodan, possibly Giburu and Metagur. So there will be more conversation about other non-Google search engines. But that course, like I tell people straight up, if I teach it on a weekend, the thing I say is, okay, well, this is the course that you're going to take it. And then come Monday, whatever you have to do that involves a search engine, you are going to run laps around your peers with. Because it's that is probably the most evergreen, valuable course where you can really see a transformation in people. Image intelligence kind of has it, but it's a lot more niche, so I don't see it as much. The other class that I believe to be probably the most valuable is the newest, actually, and that's Introduction to Intelligence Report Writing. And it's not like, okay, like I'm not teaching an English comp class in it. I tell you, okay, you need to have good spelling, grammar, and mechanics, but you've got spell check. You, uh, If the offset conditions are correct, you might be able to use something like Grammarly, but I caution you against it. But these are things you need to talk about in terms of scoping. Like, how do you, how does the client want the report delivered? Is it going to be verbally? Is it going to be a presentation? Is it going to be a written narrative? Okay. If it's a written narrative, who's going to be reading it? Okay. You need to shift your tone between executives, middle management, and individual contributors. Furthermore, during scoping, 
I tell students, you should ask this question based on who you need to, uh, like for your report, are there any accommodations that I need to have in place? Like uh, for any screenshots that I'm putting in, will the people be reading it be colorblind? Uh, do they struggle with being dyslexic or ADHD and need the bionic font or something to that effect? Uh, do you need me to use like a 16 point font instead of a 12 point font? How do you want me to get it to you? Do you want me to do it via encrypted email? Do you want me to do a, like a secure drop or like in my own experience, do you want me to print it and mail it to you in a bank bag? You know, I, I previously worked with a client that worked in the legal field and they did not want these reports subject to e-discovery. So we had to print the reports, put it in a locking bank bag and mail it to them. So that's, you know, those are the types of questions. And then we go through, here are some established intelligence writing standards. Here are the things you need to plug from that. Like, <clears throat> how do you quantify uncertainty? Or if you're quantifying something, don't go mixed method. Don't say there's a 5% chance of this happening, uh, but it could be very likely. Stick with the likelies or probables or numbers. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff like, at the end of the day, realistically, to quote John Strand, all the techniques that we do are really for show. The reports are for the dough. So writing a good report is going to get that client to call you back. Yep. And the, the, the similar point that I've made with say people in the, the trace labs community or, you know, now at day job is all the intelligence you've collected is meaningless if you can't clearly articulate its value and its meaning to someone else. Tell me why I'm supposed to care. Because at the end of the day, this is all data versus information versus intelligence, right? Data being a raw and arguable fact, a measure or a statistic. The weather in Seattle is whatever it is right now. But in information being like, what is the weather in Denver? Okay. The data for Seattle is still accurate, but you're answering a question with information. And with intelligence, you're supposed to be assisting within decision-making. And with that, it's information with the due context. And I think a lot of people get wrapped up in the translation between information and intelligence. They want to collect everything and just overwhelm. This is not a PhD dissertation. You don't need 100 pages to get your point across. If you can get your point across in three pages, get your point across in three pages. You don't need to have a high page count or a high word count to do it. But that really is what it boils down to. You need to understand your client and understand how what objectives they are trying to meet and give them the analysis and the insight that they are looking for. Because at the end of the day, when you're doing these things, you're doing it as a service provider. If the client was skilled and had the bandwidth to do the intelligence investigation themselves, they would just do it instead of hiring somebody. But instead, they're, they're hiring you to do it so that you can basically cut through everything and give them more or less the TLDR even though that TLDR might be 60 to 100 pages, depending on the investigation, they're looking at you for the expert insight. So you need to tell them why to care. Why Why do they need to log off of Zoom and put pants on and go outside and check the mailbox? One thing I've always wondered, um, like every every field has some continuing education component. You know, the people that are graduating medical school today, 
still have to keep learning medicine or surgery or engineering or accounting or, you know, I, I can't think of a single thing off the top of my head that is just completely evergreen. You know, once you're trained up on it, it's never going to change. You can do it till you die. Um, or if you try to do that, you're probably not going to be as successful as the people that are changing and adapting. Um, but back to our, our original conversation about how OSINT doesn't have a lot of formal training certifications, um, things like that. Like after someone has taken a class like yours or even somebody else's, like how do they continue to develop their skill set and continue to grow? Podcasts, blogs, discords, social medias, finding things to just investigate and flex those muscles, CTFs, all of that. It's not formal, like the training, like taking other training, getting other perspectives. Like I don't discourage people from taking other trainings. Like, do I want you to take mine? Yeah, of course. Yeah, please. Um, you know, I'm, I'm totally on board, but I'm also not doing it to get rich and that should be in, indicated in the pricing, but, you know, take other trainings, get other perspectives. Uh, like for example, I don't know a whole lot about OSINT in Australia, but if I wanted to learn about OSINT in Australia, I know where to go. And that's going to be OSINT combine. Right. Uh, for example, if I, in case, uh, I mean, not formal cases, but in instances where I needed to know more information about a particular event or something dealing with Europe, I get Chris Kubeka on the phone, you know, uh, cultivating that network. And if nothing else, having the informal conversations like a lobby con or, you know, hanging out with Joe outside Circle City Con while he verbally accosts people and tries to find out mother's maiden names. Um, although I never say mother's maiden name. I always ask, what was your mom's name before she was married? Um, but nevertheless, you know, those types of things will enrich. But you also have to stay in tune with things because, you know, with the ever-changing nature of things, we don't have formal CPE requirements. Sure, if you have like GOSI through SANS, you have CPE requirements and you can get those by going to things like the OSINT summits and the DFIR summits and other things like that. But the thing is, we don't have a formal requirement for it. It's not like CISSP or Security Plus or anything like that. So you're kind of left to your own devices and you can still be successful, marginally successful in OSINT and not stay on top of things. But the reality of it is you're going to stagnate and there's so many hungry people that just have such a hunger for knowledge and a thirst for experience that they are going to eventually render you obsolete. Uh, they're going to stay on top of things and they're just going to run with it. And really, that's what it boils down to. But because we're such a collaborative community, uh, we don't really, even though intelligence work by nature is very political at times, we don't have a lot, I'm not going to say none, but we don't have a lot of internal infighting and politics. I'm sure some exist, but we don't have it as much as you do in other disciplines within InfoSec or technology or industry as a whole. So a lot of the stuff we see with OSINT is many times actually a true meritocracy of you are judged based on the last tool you released, the last blog or podcast appearance, or the last report you published. And that really actually works out to our favor. And because there's always new material coming out, you have quite 
a good ability to stay on top of new trends because you've got all those Discord servers. You've got the Ascension, you've got Trace Labs, you've got Bellingcat, you've got Project Owl, you've got uh, Cody's server, uh, you've got Case Scenarios, which is a completely different experience. And I mean, I love it. Uh, you've got that. And I'm, I'm actually looking at all of the OSINT discords that I have access to. You've got Overt Operator, you've got Treasure, OSINT for All, Mall Frats, OSINT FR, World Class Investigator, uh, Nahumsec, uh, Bitcoin Masons, OSINT Editor, Project Owl, Orion's uh, OSINT Hub, Cyb Detective, CSI Linux has one. Uh, and I think there's even a few more that I'm missing here. Nope, I got them all. That Oh, AMAS has one as well. So you have all of these places that you can go and collaborate and you can enrich other people's environment, but at the same time, you can learn and grow yourself as well. So there's really no reason that you should not be able to self-police your own whatever self-imposed CPEs or whatever that you may have um, and be able to be successful. Yeah, I feel like our community as a whole is a fairly, well, I'm going to misuse this word, easy, but I feel like it's a fairly easy place to get caught up on. So even I will if say you just... that to, to phrase it a little bit differently, there's a low barrier to entry to get into OSINT and build the addiction, but the work itself is seldom truly, quote, easy. Yeah, um, that's probably a better way of putting it. It's It's very engaging and it can be i mean i'm living proof or i think i'm living uh yeah i've got a pulse still um but you know it, it's very easy to become all consuming but at the same time you don't have to have some like high level python programming experience if you can operate a search engine in a web browser you can be you know quote i'm going to use this dangerous but not dangerous as in to cause harm, but dangerous as in good at what you're doing. Because in Trace Labs events, what was it, DEFCON 29 when uh, we competed and Ray and Chase wrote the write-up on what we did and Ray got flamed because we talked about how much we used Google and Facebook and the other team that was flaming us for it uh, had written several tools and used all kinds of automation and I think my response on social media was, well, you know, we used what worked. I mean, if we had relied on automation, we would have just got second place. Which, you know, might have been me, you know, throwing some barbs out there, but the simplest answer is often the best answer. Yes. And I, I get that I get similar questions all the time. Like, what's the best operating system for OSINT? Well, Trace Labs has Kali, CSI Linux exists, Michael Basil has all of his scripts that you can use. Those are all great, but the one that you need to use is the one that you're comfortable with that you can meet your objectives with. Yep. So that creates a very low barrier to entry, and that's good. You know, like, are there cool kids clubs in OSINT? Yeah, sure. But, you know, you can hop into almost any of those discords I mentioned and say, hey, I'm trying to learn. This is what I'm working on. Can anyone provide me uh, any guidance for... Uh, tutorials or knowledge about this and you're probably going to get overwhelmed with responses depending on how responsive the people in that server are yeah i would say that <clears throat> from my experience we definitely love to share 
So there's a, yeah, we, we always have that constant, like we always kind of hold something back and we're always listening. We're always analyzing. So, you know, we can be a bit spooky around people from time to time and, you know, sometimes kind of concern people, but at the same time, if somebody asks us, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this. Oh, well here, you know, here you go. Take this, take this, take this, take this. And it, you know, it's like, you know, you, you go to your grandmother's house and your grandmother's like, Oh, are you hungry? Eh, I ate three hours ago. And next thing you know, you're getting sent home with like a trunk load of food. Um, because that's just how it works because we, we all have our techniques and we're proud of them and we want to share them. You know, I, I, myself, I have some scripts I've not shared. Uh, I've shared some with some people, but I've not made them open to the masses. But if I put something on public GitHub and someone says, Hey, I'm trying to find something to scrape WikiLeaks. I got you, fam. Here you go. We all, we all share because the thing is you being able to scrape WikiLeaks is not going to take away my ability to scrape WikiLeaks. It may help you with your investigation and, you know, that may make for a good mutual networking relationship. Yeah. And, um, I, I realized what I was trying to say earlier. Um, there is so much OSINT to be had. It can, it can seem overwhelming, especially if you like take a break. Like if you don't do this professionally and you just, you know, take an OSINT break for a few months, it can feel like the world has passed you by. Like there are new platforms, there are new techniques. Some tools have broken, some tools have been created. Um, so I would urge people to one, like if you have those investigative fundamentals, you can pick up on the new platform pretty quick or the new technique. Um, a lot of those are just interesting ways or interesting things built on, you know, those fundamentals. So don't feel like you have to be on Twitter 24 seven or you'll fall behind. The other thing I like to call out is, you know, do what interests you. Like, you know, Joe, you said that OSINT is omnipresent and that's probably the best way I've ever heard it put, but like, find out like what interests you. Um, you know, like Ray Baker, really into maritime and really good at it. Um, you know, so she, she found, you know, what interested her, um, you know, at trace labs, we're interested in people. Um, you know, but if you're, I mean, I'll use Aleth Dennis, you know, who's the real estate OSIT expert. She's an expert at lots of things, but you know, like hearing her talk about her real estate, um, knowledge and how she can apply that to investigations. It's like, holy crap. Like there is so much out there. I urge people to, you know, just find the thing that interests them and just dig in. Yeah. And the thing is, you're not going to be able to do high level OSINT or high level anything on something that you're not interested in. Yeah. You've got to have the interest or you're not going to succeed. That's just kind of the reality of it. So if you, if you have the, uh, the interest and the passion with it. And the thing is, if you have the interest, you have the passion and you're able to kind of adjust the way you think, I can teach you the techniques. I cannot teach you passion. I cannot teach you how to be interested in something. I can try to spur an interest in it, but I cannot, I cannot truly 
create that. That's solely on you. One thing you touched on earlier that I've always like thought about is as a teacher or as a trainer, um, how much do you have to like go back and like, you know, either create new courses from scratch, like touch up the ones you already have, because some of the landscape is changing what seems like daily. So that a course you made a year ago, you know, either needs some adjustment now or might not be relevant because Twitter is completely different than it was, you know, a year ago. Um, or a search engine went away or I'm just making all these up. But like, so how much of your time as a teacher is spent like, you know, with those adaptations or do you just try to make con uh, content that's maybe more evergreen by nature? Like you said, like dorking. The slides themselves stay rather evergreen. The narrative that goes alongside it changes every single class. You could take the same class. Like, for example, if I taught people like right now, I'm teaching part two tonight. You could have taken Monday and tonight and then I could teach it again on Saturday, which I'm not going to, but I could. And the narrative would be entirely different, either driven partially because of things that have changed, things that I have observed, but it could also be because of student questions and who it is. So that's the way I tend to address it. But I do try to at least ideally quarterly, but sometimes it comes to about every six months because I used to try to offer every single course every single month and it just didn't work out. So now I try to offer every single course close to quarterly, depending on demand. And I go on Discord and I'll say, hey, what do you all want to see in the next quarter? In fact, there's a current poll in the Ascension Discord of it lists out all the courses. What do you want to see in the next quarter? And based on those results, that's where things are going to get scheduled. So as a byproduct, I will like whenever I'm looking at um, when I'm looking at what to schedule and I figure out what's going on, uh, I will also go through uh, and make sure that nothing has to change. Like, for example, the slide about OSIN adjacent nonprofits, uh, you know, are the organizations listed on it still around, right? Layer 8 has pretty much called it quits, so I had to remove them. Badass Army, I used to have them on there. They called it quits. Then some of the other organizations have been tied to unsavory things like QAnon or uh, other conspiracy type things. And I'm like, mm, I don't think I want to be tied to this. So, um, yep, no, I'm good. So, you know, that's kind of the way uh, that I address it. I make sure that everything in there is still relevant. And then if I need to make changes, I make the changes. So, uh, but in terms of the slide deck, I tend to uh, try to update them about quarterly if nothing else, and then the rhetoric itself, that that could change from one class to another. Makes sense. And I think that either I heard this somewhere or I'm just making it up on the fly, but, you know, great teachers are also great students. So you have to keep learning if you're going to be an effective instructor. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be upfront. Like, I've been very hesitant to take other OSINT courses. And it's not because I think I know everything, because I don't. I'm far from it. The more I've learned, the more I've learned that I don't know. But 
I know some courses, they're just either prohibitively expensive or I look at the content and it's just not relevant to what I'm interested in. Or like, for example, I know that some organizations are a little bit more litigious than others and may make an, like, may immediately make an accusation. Oh, well, you teach OSINT and you took our class. So you're obviously using our material. So I've been hesitant to take other courses on that behalf. Like I, I've tended to rely more on like watching YouTube stuff or things like that. Uh, but I bit the bullet recently, and I am currently 22% complete uh, through the Intel Techniques course uh, in pursuit of my OSIP. Cool. But the Jason Edison, the teacher for Intel Techniques now, his teaching style is entirely different than mine. The way that he approaches things in class is different than mine. Uh, he goes a little bit deeper or a lot a bit deeper uh, for some topics than I do. And some things he just scrapes the surface where I would dive deep into it. So, you know, being the student of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the other adage that comes would be those who can do, do, and those who can't teach. But I try to destroy that stereotype every opportunity I get, especially when I have a student asking, do you even regex, bro? You know, I said that one time and I didn't even know you did a regex course. So now it's extra funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, well, that's why I had to bring it up. But, you know, and the thing is like a lot of my perspective in the classes is different than some people because I don't have a law enforcement background. I never worked in government intelligence, um, but I have worked in red team. I've worked in blue team. I've worked in compliance. I've worked a variety of roles within InfoSec. Uh, I can write code. It's not the best code, but it, it eventually works, but I can write a variety of different things. So I use that experience and I'm like, these are things that you can look at. Like, for example, I was doing a guest lecture with a university last night and they were asking about like social engineering and cross training. And I was like, well, a perfect example of that is a talk that I gave pre COVID called social forensication. And the context of it is that you use social engineering to convince someone that you need to take a forensic memory image of their computer. You take that forensic memory image and you walk away with it and you use forensic techniques to actually uh, perform offensive operations because things that are in memory are truth. So you can extract passwords from memory. You can extract running processes from memory, version numbers, installed software, all this stuff that for a red teamer, that's really important stuff. Like you, I mean, if you, you, you could go way deep into the windows ecosystem with that, but you know, all these things that a red teamer may do, I mean, they can gain remote access, run Mimi cats, do some Kerber roasting and do all that fun stuff. But for well-trained SOC, they're going to detect that if they don't have some sort of sore in place that's going to stop it. The thing is, with social forensication, your opportunities for detection would be plugging in a thumb drive, executing the thing to take the forensic memory image, and then unplugging the thumb drive. That's your only opportunity for detection. All the stuff you do off, off-site uh, using volatility or whatever else there's no detection for something happening on somebody outside your network's computer. So cross-training and doing, you know, understanding how it plays into social engineering, right? Because social engineering, all of InfoSec is intelligence. 
right? You've got SIGINT. That's the offensive side. To a degree, there's some defensive perspective to it. I don't really subscribe to the acronyms of SIBINT and TECINT. The U.S. federal government does, but I don't fully subscribe to them. But if you're doing forensics, that's what you're doing. To a degree, there's a lot of measurement and signature intelligence associated with uh, blue team in terms of SOC, in terms of IR, uh, which would fall under MASINT. Same thing with OSINT. Like, I mean, if you're going to do some trig, that's probably what you're doing. Telemetry. How many vendors on the Black Hat floor next week are going to be talking about telemetry? Tell it. It all exists there. So OSINT being its own thing, SOCMENT being adjacent to OSINT, and then social engineering really is human intelligence. Human. So if you think of everything in intelligence, you can look at it as an all-source ecosystem and better understand how OSINT can play into threat intel, can play into red team or purple team or compliance even, or AppSec or uh, even social engineering. Because just like you, I got into OSINT because of social engineering, right? I talked to Chris Silvers after he won the SECTF and I was like, what's your secret? He's like, I took Michael Basil's course. I was like, who's Michael Basil? He's like, look him up. So then I looked him up and I started researching and then I realized, okay, well, all these things in conjunction with having read uh, Frank Abengale's Stealing Your Life and, you know, Frank Abengale, he's kind of been outed as a fraud as of late, but the ideas that in that book are still relevant in terms of you can learn these things about a person to do this, to get ready for the contact so that you have the context that you need. And then, you know, time goes on. I learned that I like OSINT more than social engineering. And, you know, my true origin story for getting deep into OSINT was I had Justin Seitz on my old podcast. I thought we were going to be talking about Python. And he starts talking about like all these scripts he's written with like Amaga to identify AK-47s. And he keeps saying this word OSINT. And finally, I was like, you keep saying this word, but what does it mean? And when he explained it, I was like, I've been doing this for years. He's like, yeah, everybody has. They just don't know that's what it's called. And then that's when I really started diving deep into it. And in hindsight, I wish I had have known that I liked OSINT more than social engineering because then my main Twitter handle could be JoeSent instead of C3P Joe. But I do have JoeSent as a Twitter. Uh, it's just dormant. <laughs> awesome. I think my last, Mike, my, my last question, there can be other stuff, but the last thing on my mind is... Um, what is some advice or some guidance you would give for anyone that like wants to take that step from student to teacher? Like, how do you know you're ready to teach? Um, what are some lessons you've learned along the way? Things you wish you would have known three years ago when you started these courses. You're never truly ready to teach. You either do it or you don't. And even if you're, even if you consider yourself to be more of a noob, you can probably still teach someone something. Uh, everybody has their unique secret sauce to show and teach. But what I've developed is I've got a group of trusted people and friends and peers that I bounce ideas off of. I mean, Tom, you're one of them. I mean, you and Baluv, Robert, uh, all of the Trace Labs ecosystem. I've got several people in the Discord. Some have black and platinum badges. Some are relatively new. Some have never taken a course. Some have. And I'm like, hey, what's your what's your thought on this? Um, you know, another person that I uh, talk to quite a bit for a sounding board is Brian Brake. 
uh, from the Breaking Down Security podcast. Hey, what's your thoughts on this? Because he's he's more in project management. He's not in OSINT, but he has a unique perspective that I value. So, you know, and now, now that I have an on-demand platform, I can create a course as I think it should be and say, okay, here's my outline. What do you think? Here's, and then they can ask questions about, oh, well, what's this? What's this? And I can explain it and, you know, get consensus there, record the material and then grant, you know, more or less beta testers access to a course early, get their feedback, go back and make the changes, then schedule the webinar to announce the new class and then drop the new class. Um, so, you know, if, if you're looking to make the transition to teaching, establish a sounding board of trusted people and don't get yes people. You don't want to get people that are just unnecessarily disruptive, but you want a group of people that are going to be truthful with you that are going to tell you, no, this sucks. No, there's no reason that you should do this. How is this different than what other person's doing? You want, you want that constructive honest, blunt criticism, get that. And then just test some stuff out. I mean, you can start out doing free workshops at B-Sides events and get the feedback on it because with the workshop, I mean, workshops versus training, right? Training the implication between the two. Like when I hear someone say workshop to me, that typically means, okay, we're not charging for it. So take a free two hour workshop or like 10, $15 workshop, or like what I do with webinars, I charge $10 for webinars. Uh, I've not had a webinar in a while, but I charge $10 for a webinar because I don't deal with sponsors. And I use that to offset my cost to zoom. And, you know, sometimes I do a free webinar. Like if I'm dropping a course, it's a free webinar, but ultimately it's one of those things that, you know, get in on the webinars, um, see what other people are doing. And, Evaluate yourself. I will tell you that from a delivery perspective, the single worst thing that I have done is read the YouTube comments of talks I have given. In terms of delivery, the best thing that I have done is started applying subtitles to my on-demand material and YouTube and every everything I've recorded in 2023 has been subtitled. And that has made me hyper aware of filler words and filler phrases that I use. It has made me hyper aware of when I get excited and I, 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 I start repeating the same word over and over again. You kind of get that Ozzy Osbourne talk going on. And then it also made me hyper aware of when talking to other people, my propensity to attempt to continue finishing my thought by talking over someone else. And these are all things like you need to be, you need to put yourself in the shoes of a student, but at the same time, you also need to exercise introspect and self-critique as well so that you have a better understanding of your own tendencies so that you can play to those tendencies as opposed to uh, exacerbating something that someone may find annoying. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. Um, I'm looking forward to next week at DEF CON. Uh, this will be the first time you and I have met in five years. So like face to face, this will be fun. I'll give you a rundown of my schedule for DEF CON. So um, I'm doing a book signing at noon at the No Starch booth on Friday, August 11th. 
I will be doing a book signing at 11 a.m. at the Anti-Siphon and Black Hills booth on Saturday the 12th. Uh, I'm planning on judging the OSINT search party, and then I'll be attending a party. Uh, beyond that, I'll be around. I've got some stuff on the calendar, but not a whole lot. So feel free to reach out on your social media platform of choice or Discord uh, if you want to meet up or whatever. Um, within that, I don't have any courses coming up scheduled. Um, expect some news coming on that in the near future. Uh, but if you want to get started with some OSINT material, you can always check out academy.theosension.com. That's my on-demand platform. I have some webinars there. I all The webinars uh, are there. Some There's one that I didn't drive. Uh, Monica Camacho did. I highly encourage you to look at that. <clears throat> um, I'm working on getting the entire course library on demand. I'm currently working on the companion course to my book. The course is going to be called Applied Social Engineering so that it doesn't conflict with the name of any other courses or former names of any courses. Right now, I'm working on chapter seven of 12 and I've got six hours of on-demand material. So I anticipate that it'll probably be close to 12 or more hours of material when it's finished for on-demand. I don't know what I'm pricing it at as yet. I was originally trying to have it out this week, but obviously that didn't happen because life got in the way. Uh, so my new goal is probably October to the end of the year timeframe. And then from there, I'm, I've already got some material for some of the other courses already recorded. I just have to complete the whole course and figure out how to, I want to better incorporate labs and questions and what have you, not necessarily you asking questions because discord's there, but kind of like quizzes within the platform. I'm also evaluating whether I want to move to a different on-demand platform, which wouldn't change anything for any anybody. It would be transparent to you, but uh, I'm evaluating that as well. So um, you can also check out uh, the Ascension on YouTube. Um, we've not done any streams in a while. And then of course, Discord as well. And I'll provide Tom with all the links for that fun stuff. But that's it. Besides that, thanks for taking the time um, to have me on and uh, to talk about this. As you can probably and hopefully just vocally, you can tell this is something I'm very passionate about. I take very seriously and, uh, you know, I, I want to see people succeed and I want to see the OSINT world uh, continue to prosper and grow. Well, cool. Well, this has been another episode. I will see you all on the next one. This has been another episode of Breadcrumbs. If you'd like to learn more, you can find us online at tracelabs.org, on Twitter, at tracelabs. But if you really want to find us, just follow the breadcrumbs. <laughs> <laughs>